missionary Bible translator was once struggling to find a word in a native language for, for obedience. And he couldn't figure it out. And he came home one day and he whistled for his dog and it came running at full speed right to him. There was an older man that was watching and he said in the native tongue, your dog is all ear. It's all ear. And so immediately he translated obedience, all ear. I'm thankful for many, many all ear obedient Christians that I know that practice what I'm about to preach today. This church is good at practicing what I am about to preach. It's imperative that we do what the Word of God says, that we, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, tell us, love your leaders. Love your leaders. In response to Timothy's encouraging report that he brought back, Paul wants the Thessalonians to be all ear. He wants them to do what he has been preaching, and he wants them to have that watchfulness, that soberness that you need to have as you're anticipating the imminent return of Christ, but there's this urgency to practice right then, right there, right now, what he is preaching. Because the imminency of Christ's return leads to an urgency to love, and to love the people in your church. And Paul, in these two verses, gives some strikingly brief directions regarding love. Now this series we're in, as we're going verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians, it's called Beloved. It's the idea of the beloved of God in Christ becoming beloved to one another urgently in light of the imminency of Christ's return. And we've seen this together as a church, how biblical love is the will of God for his church. And, And what it does is it displays the startling beauty that defeats disunity. Put another way, you could say that God's sovereign love drives our sincere love for one another. His sovereign choosing love leads us then to choose to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You could say it this way. The work of the word of God in our hearts brings about beautiful outcomes when we initiate good. By the way, what I'm preaching today is is timing-wise perfect because it dovetails with confirming new leaders that we're in the process of doing, new elders and new deacons. This is about loving your leaders, In this passage, here's what we see. It's very simple. First, we see what good leaders do. Second, what good followers do. And third, what everybody must do. So what good leaders do, what good followers do, what everybody must do. As we go through these two brief verses, this is what we will see. The idea is that church members are to know and love their leaders. And when you love your leaders, you please Jesus. When you love your leaders, you please Jesus. Well, let's look first at, at what a good leader does. Verse 12, Paul begins this way, we ask you, brothers, we ask you, brothers and sisters. Now, he's going to say urge in verse 14, but here he says ask. And what this is, is a very personal request from a friend. When a friend comes and says, would you please do this for me? That's what he's saying. He said, we ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
He's going to give the proper stance towards leaders. But who are they? Those who labor among you, who are they? They are the elders that Paul had appointed when he was in Thessalonica. Now, he may have been thinking of Thessalonians that are listed elsewhere in Scripture, like Jason, Acts 17, or Aristarchus or Secundus in Acts 20. We don't know, though. We don't know the name of the elders in the church of the Thessalonians. But him saying this, it appears that some members in the church were not on board to follow their leaders. Paul says, respect these men who care for your souls. And, And he points out that leaders function in three areas. The work of a pastor elder is summarized in a threefold description in this verse. Laboring, overseeing, and admonishing. First, laboring. It's the description of good leaders. They labor among you. They're with the flock. They're, they're, they're working hard. The, the idea of labor here is grow weary to the point of exhaustion, physical and mental labor. You work with great effort to the point of exhaustion. And he says, they work hard among you. Plural, they, your elders. They exert themselves for your benefit, for your edification, amid great difficulty. They instruct you, they comfort you, they guide you, they they guide you in the things of God to the point of deep weariness in their own souls. They were, put it this way, they were local examples of how love works hard. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, this labor of love. In contrast, though, to the problem group in the church, and every church has some kind of a pocket sometimes of a problem group. They, they had it in Thessalonica. And they were doing practically nothing except busybodying. We saw that in chapter 4, verse 11. But he's saying, no, we have a labor of love. You have people among you that are laboring in love, toiling to the point of exhaustion and extreme weariness and fatigue. This is the idea of straining every ounce of energy that you have to the utmost. Like back in my running days, I would run a race it, was a, it didn't matter if it was the 800, which back in my day it was the 880, some of you remember that, or it was a 10K, I would give that race everything I had so that after I was done, I wasn't running any more races that day. And the reason why is that I poured it all out and I left it all there. I, I went to the point of exhaustion. It's like those of you that like deep cleaning, right? Maybe your garage, but maybe your house, and you're cleaning and cleaning and cleaning, and you, you get to the point where you're just exhausted, or you ever chopped wood? I mean, I, I love chopping wood. I don't do it too often, but I do sometimes. And you, it's good tired when you get done. You're like, I did something. But you get to the point of you put out all the energy. And here's the way Paul put it to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said this. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love you that much. I'll go to the point of exhaustion. I'll go to the point where I have no energy left. So laboring is is kind of a a biggie. And and then what Paul does is he he points out two of those main areas where the hard work would be evident. He says, those who are over you in the Lord and those who admonish you. Oversight, overseeing. They're over you in the Lord. So a, a good leader works hard, labors, 
and overseas. Oversight here means to stand before the church to lead them. The word is over you. It means to rule. It means to direct. It's, It's the idea of watching over the congregation. What's key to know here is that the authority is not vested in one person. It is a plurality. Those who do this, there's a plurality of elders. They are over you in the Lord. They're leading you. They're directing you. They're guiding you. They're protecting you. They're caring for you. And God appointed them as your leaders. There's reason to respect them. God-given positions. We should let nothing erode respect for the office, but there are plenty of men who have been in the office of pastor elder that have caused erosion of respect for the office, and we are to do nothing of the sort. Robert Thomas, one of my seminary professors, said this, Anarchy is always wrong, particularly among Christians. If any tendency to it existed in Thessalonica, it had to be rooted out. He said, where believers are united with Christ, respectful submission to Christian leaders is service to the Lord. So they oversee you in the Lord. Now there's a third thing, though. They admonish you. This is the toughest part. They admonish you. There's an admonishing that is often necessary. Now, the big idea is instructing in the truth of God's word. It's the idea of putting someone in mind about something important, to advise someone, to warn someone. But the bigger idea here is about correcting those in error. That leaders, good leaders, care enough to boldly tell the truth with no fear of man. To tell the truth. To admonish the assembly. To administer needful correction, even. And what can happen? If if you get admonished... Very easy to get resentful. Well, who are you to tell me? And so he's saying you need to be respecting those who are admonishing you in the Lord. Discipline is never pleasant. It's easy to get resentful, but admonition requires respect for the people that are being admonished and respect on the part of the people who are being admonished. That there's a mutual respect. They're urging you in private, in public, to obey God. They're giving you needed encouragement, but they're also giving you reproof and correction when necessary. Receive it. It's for the good of your soul. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage, the most important phrase in this verse. He is speaking of those who are laboring and overseeing and admonishing, right? And they're doing it, I want you to notice in verse 12, they're doing it in the Lord. That's the most important part of this verse. They're doing it in the Lord. They're doing it in Christ. There are no more important words in this verse. If you think about the sweeping story of Scripture, it reveals the glory of Christ's lordship all the way through. The lordship of Christ they're doing this in the Lord. And you think of the sweeping story of Scripture and the, Lord, and the Lordship of Christ from creation in a garden full of glory to the fall and the day of death to redemption being promised uh, through Noah in, in, a, in a boat full of life and Abraham looking up at a sky full of stars 
And Moses on a mountain full of glory. And, and David's throne of messianic hopeful glory. And the prophets foretelling tension prior to a glorious incarnation. It is all about the lordship of Christ who took on flesh, who bore the cup of suffering, who died as the Lord of glory, rising in glory and creating his church full of people indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Gloriously looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, a renewed world full of God's glory. It is all about being in the Lord. When, when you're in Christ, when you're a believer, when you've yielded your life to Christ, when you believe the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, that Jesus substituted himself in our place, shed his blood for our sins, and that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. If you believe that, your, your life in Christ is, is a living illustration of the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord of his church, the glory of the Lord of your life. So there's no more important words in this verse than in the Lord. They're doing these things in Christ. I don't want you to pass those words by so quickly. Linger on them. We're in the presence of God together. Linger on those words. Delight that there is a Lord. And he is the one being served. And he is his church. And he is placing leaders in his church. Now, supporting all of this is all the New Testament teaching on eldering, on eldership. What you'll notice as you go through the New Testament is that the terms overseer and elder and pastor, pastor shepherd, are all used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office, the same position. In Ephesians 4, 11, God gave pastor teachers, pastor as poimen, shepherds. In 1 Timothy 3, 1, if you aspire to the office of overseer, that's episkopos. In Titus 1, it speaks of elders and overseers interchangeably, elder, presbyteros, overseer, episkopos. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you as a fellow elder. The elders among you in the church, here's what you're to do, shepherd, poimano, pastor, the flock of God among you. Exercise oversight, not forced, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, and not for shameful gain, not for selfishness, but eagerly. You want to do it. This is what it means to aspire to the office of, of elder. You want to be a servant, and you keep wanting to be a servant of the church under Christ. A lot of these young churches at that moment didn't have their elders yet. They needed their elders. This is why when Paul told Titus, he said, put in order what remains, it was putting elders into position. Establishing the church properly. Elders oversee churches. That's the biblical model. Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders, presbyteros, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In Acts 20, you see all three terms used in the same context. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. Presbyteros, elders. And here's what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves, your private lives, 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for, poimano, pastor, shepherd, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's how important the church is. A blood-bought bride. So that never, ever to downgrade the weightiness of church leadership. Don't take it too lightly. Don't take church leadership too lightly. Elders are to pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Let me, let me just illustrate this in several ways. What does it mean to be an elder, part of an elder, a part of a plurality of elders in a local church? Elders are, first I would say it this way, elders are leaders driving the ship. They're at the helm. Elder presbyteros refers to maturity. It is not necessarily meaning someone who is older in age. Paul told youthful elder Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth. So spiritual maturity is essential for elders who are driving the ship. 1 Timothy 3.2 says an elder, an overseer, must be sober-minded self-controlled, respectable, and not a brand new believer, not a recent convert, because he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So elders are at the helm, steering the church by the word of God. Let me give you another picture. Elders are servant leader foot washers leading by example, by the example of Christ. Overseer, episkopos, means to give oversight or authority over a group as a watchman. And the leaders of the church are to give spiritual oversight with the authority God has given them. And, and as Hebrews 13, 17 says, they're keeping watch over your souls. They care about your soul. You're keeping watch. You know, it means to keep watch? Abstain from sleep. Like, keep awake so that others can sleep. Guard. Elders don't fall asleep at the wheel. Elders don't doze off on duty. They protect and guide the flock that's been entrusted to them. And lest you think, well, this elder thing in the church is just like worldly authority. Jesus corrects that right up front in Matthew 20. Spiritual authority in the church is not like worldly authority. Jesus said this, Matthew 20, verse 25. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus modeled for elders what it means to be a servant of the flock. He proved it by taking a slave's towel and he stoops to wash his disciples' feet. Peter told pastors, elders, lead humbly, be examples to the flock. Let me give you another picture. Elders are bodyguards, protecting the flock with the powerful word of God. Pastor, poimen, refers to the work leaders do, and to shepherd, it's, it's the ideal metaphor for spiritual oversight. Jesus used it of himself in John 10. Shepherds feed sheep. Pastors nourish a congregation with the word of God. Pastors and elders guide the church 
in making decisions, by directing them to Scripture, by rebuking people when they sin, by exhorting them to obey God, just like a shepherd would guide sheep to safe and healthy pastures. For they're good. Shepherds are guardians in a spiritual war, guarding the flock from predators that would come in and ravage the church like wolves. Tasked with defending the faith, exposing false teachers whose dangerous doctrines just ravage the church, and like wolves, in Acts 20, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, here's what he says. Paul says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to to draw away the disciples after them. This This is serious. By the way, in those days, shepherding sheep was not the desirable job. It was socially undesirable. It was a dirty job that someone had to do and nobody wanted to do. By the way, do you know that uh, Dirty Jobs, the show, is coming back? After 10 years hiatus, Mike Rowe is bringing it back. And here's what he says about the show. It's an honest look at a hard day's work through the eyes of an apprentice. I like that. An honest look at a hard day's work through the eyes of an apprentice. I mean, that was the granddaddy of the essential worker shows. And essential work is headline news today. Now, Elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor are essential workers in the church. Now, I wouldn't call the job of pastor, elder, overseer a dirty job physically. I mean, every once in a while you get your hands dirty. But mentally and emotionally, it qualifies. It's not for the faint of heart. Especially in the 2020, 2021, now 2022 years of indiscriminate blasting. It hurts me the most when our elders get blasted. We are to indiscriminately love. And in this atmosphere, Jesus calls his under-shepherds to lovingly and firmly and humbly and boldly, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 4, shepherd the flock of God among you. And he says, hey, by the way, any, uh, any reward or thanks comes later. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Followers need to see their work and appreciate them for it. They're laboring among you. They're spending and being spent. They're over you in the Lord. There's an authority that's a servant leader admonishing you in preaching and in personal moments and in private and public ministry and and often, often, there are more complaints coming than anything. People will say things like, I'm not getting what I want. I don't like this or I don't like that. And what happens is we start sitting in judgment and we miss the word of God, the sweetness of the word of God because we're fixed on the packaging. How you said it, what you look like, how you talk. Elders must work hard. Be faithful, be accurate with the word of God, read it and explain it and apply it and engage people with it. And the flock must hear it and receive it and do it. To be a good leader 
if you want to be a leader, you have to em- embrace the calling. Aspire to it. Embrace the calling and aspire. Now, aspiring to it doesn't mean that you, you want it too much or you push yourself to the front. It means you want to take the servant's role and you keep wanting to take the servant's role for the glory of God and the good of the church. You, you keep wanting to do that. And, it, and it's a functioning plurality of elders that need to be present that are biblically qualified and that are committed by God's grace to lead and feed and protect and care for the flock and we live with non-negotiables our elders must exhibit some non-negotiables we must be humble to cling to Christ not eldering we we must be approachable and act quickly to to reconcile with people to go first and make it right and forgive quickly we must have integrity. We, we keep confidential things confidential. We, we are honest. We repent. We, we must be gentle, we, we, not argumentative, not easily riled up. We need to be even-tempered. We need to be bold. A good leader is bold. Courage to stand for truth with grace unwaveringly and address issues and don't let them fester. In Titus 1.9, it says this of elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Every humble elder struggles with that last part, to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. But every elder needs to realize the calling is higher than us, and we have to acknowledge it. And if called on, we feel unworthy, And we shouldn't magnify the office. We shouldn't downplay it. Jesus gives his church leaders. And it's not about us. It's not about our personality. He delights to use the weak to show his strength. I like to say that I need to preach this three times because I need this three times more than anybody else. Leaders, if you're a leader, you need to rejoice in the work of God. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 13. As the word of God does the work in people's hearts, we don't, we don't take any credit. We just give all the praise to God. That's what good leaders do. They, they labor, they oversee, they admonish. Now, what does a good follower do? Well, a good follower respects and esteems. First, it, it says in verse 12 that we ask, we request, we implore, we literally beg you, brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Respect them. What does that mean? It means to see them. Literally, it means to see them. To, to recognize who they are and appreciate them. It literally means to know them. And it's not just simple facial recognition, like, oh, I know who that person is. Where you know your elders well enough to have real appreciation for them. I mean, that word to, to know is pregnant with meaning. It means you see their true character. You recognize their worth, their value. There is this sense of appreciation for them. You respect those who labor and admonish you. You know why Paul's saying this? Most likely, they were not appropriately appreciating and, or listening to their leaders. He says in verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem them very highly in love. That means looking with favor upon them very highly, exceedingly, most earnestly, even to the point where you would defend them when appropriate. Not if they do wrong. But esteem them. It means to esteem them beyond measure. 
with no reservation, where there's wholehearted, loving support and high appreciation for an elder's work. This literally, this word's been used before, but it means, very highly means, more than out of bounds, overflowing all the bounds, super abundantly. The idea of keep running over. Picture a river overflowing its banks to water fields and bless many. Just going out and watering the fields and blessing many. He's saying, esteem them beyond measure, limitless, exceedingly, overflowing. Know your pastors and elders and think rightly and lovingly of them, not due to their charm, not due to their personality, but because they serve Jesus, because of their work, it says. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. Not, don't flatter them. Just give appropriate appreciation. And this church is good at that. You're good at this. Value and highly esteem your leaders in love because of their work. They build you up. They preach the word of God by, by God's power. They prepare you even for the return of Christ. We're getting prepared for the return of Christ. Well, there's an urgency to this love because there's an imminency to the return of Christ. We believe in the personal, bodily, imminent, promised return of Christ. The moment of God's choosing. Paul told the Corinthians, be subject to such people like this. And to every fellow worker and laborer, because they refreshed my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. He told the Philippians, hey, I, I sent Epaphroditus. Listen to what he says about him. Fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. And then Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17. Key verses, if you want to be a good follower. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Your leaders should be imitatable. Look at verse 17, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I and my fellow elders here will give an account for how we cared for your souls. And, and it says this, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. There's the two options, joy or groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you if you do the groaning thing. Don't shoot them in the foot. Don't shoot yourself in the foot. Most people who shoot themselves in the foot shoot someone else in the foot too. Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't make them groan. Let them do the work that God has given them to do with joy. You're good at that as a church. You know how you do it? You want to be a good follower? You first have to, I know this is going to sound kind of weird, but you have to identify as the flock of the elders of this church or the elders of the church you belong to. Identify as their flock. To be a good follower, you must first identify as the flock of your leaders. That you are a specific sheep in a specific church under specific shepherds. It's not general, it's specific. That you become a member of the church, that they know, we know your testimony, and we have mutual accountability. This is how God designed it. You know, so many people go independent. It's dangerous. Your soul gets in jeopardy when you go independent. There's a lot of people just bounce from church to church. You should be under the care of faithful shepherds in one church. Until God moves you on. And by the way, I'm going to tell you today, right now, who the perfect pastor and elder is. 
you know. You know who the perfect pastor and elder is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus, by the way, is the perfect pastor and elder of your soul. 1 Peter 2.25 tells us that. Here's what it says. You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, poimen, and overseer, episkopos, guardian, of your souls. The perfect pastor and elder for your soul is the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He wants you in a local church under human shepherds who work together to teach and lead you. That's his design. That's why we encourage people to process things with their elders, big, big things in their life. If, 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 let's say it gets to the point where you're like, I need to move on to a different church. We say prayerfully consider seeking wise counsel from your elders. We, we don't want to control your life. But we do want you to grow in Christ, and we do want you to have a clear conscience. I mean, people leave churches for all sorts of reasons. It happens all the time across the world. And usually they have issues with someone or something. And it's perfectly fine to go join another church for biblical reasons. Not for selfish or sinful reasons. Because when you do that, you make another church unhealthy when you show up. You have to resolve issues biblically. Go to the source. If needed, ask for help. We do this all the time. When people come and want to be a member of Grace Church, here's what we ask. If you're coming from a nearby church, are there any unreconciled relationships or issues with anybody in your former church? We encourage people to go back and make things right, make peace, then come link up with us. You'll be a healthier Christian. We'll be a healthier church. Your former church will be healthier. And some of you are so sensitive in your consciences, I just have to say, don't be overly worried. Maybe everything is totally fine. Just praise God. But you know in your heart if things aren't. And things happen in human relationships. Just handle things biblically in mature ways. If you wonder how that, what that looks like, read Ephesians 4. There's one good example. But I just want to say, we're, you know, your leaders are ordinary folks doing extraordinary work because we, have an, we serve an extraordinary God. And your elders, no matter how ordinary we are, are under shepherds under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I want you to remind, remember, elders is plural. Plurality keeps us in check. It's so none of our sin breaks out on the church and causes ruin. This is God's design. It needs to be a, a, a plurality of elders. None of us go solo. We're, we're a team. Or we're committed to work together for the glory of God and good of this church. Or we're not politicians. We're not community organizers. We're under orders. We, we, we exist to serve Christ and love his people. You want to make your elders day? Do this. Follow Jesus and do what the word of God says. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, by the way, everything I'm saying doesn't mean you can't, can't you know, disagree or voice your opinions. But here's the way you want to measure that. If your stance is always that you know better than everybody else, 
or you only bring criticism, or you do it inappropriately, it's wrong. There's your admonition for today. Here's another one. Don't send pot shots to the elders. Think it through and meet face to face. Think kindness versus unhinged criticism. If you're angry, don't press send. If you've been attacked, don't retaliate. Bless. We're going to see that more next week. You want to be a good follower, you need to receive God's gifts graciously and gratefully. When you, when you receive the ministry of your elders, you're worshiping Jesus. When you say thank you, you're choosing the startling beauty that defeats disunity. When you receive the ministry of your elders, it shows that you respect and esteem them, but most importantly, you respect and esteem Jesus Christ. You think highly of Jesus, so highly of Jesus that you would obey Jesus in his strength, for his glory. When you reject your leaders, you're rejecting God's order. If that's you, may God kindly lead you to repentance. I'm writing, reading a really good book by Megan Hill called A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And here's what she says. No matter how ordinary your elders appear, they are in reality Christ's perfectly chosen gift to you. When you receive the ministry of your elders, you receive the ministry of Christ himself. Now that fits with what Jesus said in Matthew 10:40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. When you receive your elders' teaching and leadership, you choose the startling beauty that defeats disunity. And I would say this today. Handle your elders with care. Not because they're fragile, but because they are trying to faithfully serve God and you. And I'm going to say this too. I would be very happy if none of you encouraged me today or this week. You are really good at it. Pick somebody else. Our other pastors and elders, they are amazing men. Send a word of thanks. Pick up a phone. Get together. Thank them and encourage them for their work in the Lord. Shower them with love. Affirm their work. I want our pastors and elders to be loved and affirmed for the work that they do in the Lord. What good leaders do, they labor, they oversee, they admonish. They're not looking for Pats on the back. But what does a good follower do? They respect and esteem their leaders. Now we have one more thing we need to take care of here. The last part of verse 13. It puts it all together. This brings it all together right here. What should everyone do? It's very simple and one of the toughest things to pull off. Be at peace among yourselves. What everyone must do is be at peace. Everyone, without qualification. Everyone. Be at peace among yourselves. Tells me that maybe there were some tensions in the fellowship in Thessalonica. That relationships were not all that they were meant to be. They need to be at peace. When you submit to your leadership, as everyone submits to Christ as Lord, peace prevails in the church. You love your leaders by living at peace with them. Even be loyal to your leaders. Don't argue with them all the time or criticize them who admonish you. Treat them with respect as they treat you with respect. Our elders are some of the most humble and kind men I know. Exercise peace. Practice peace. You have peace with, if you're a believer, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility. Show it in your actions. And by the way, Paul said something 
quite curious to the Galatians in Galatians 5.13. He said this, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. And then he said this in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. See, biting and devouring each other is ruinous. The picture is of wild animals engaged in a fight to the death, like bison clashing. The idea is self-centeredness and lovelessness is destructive to the church. I was just reading... Uh, the story of Joseph and his uh, brothers from Genesis this week. And when he sent them away, after you know, he gave them the food and the whole thing, and they got reconciled, he sent them away. Here's what he said to them. Another curious thing. Do not quarrel on the way. They were all going to be tempted to play the blame game. Who was at fault? Who did this? Who did that? I love Psalm 133.1. Good, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I read another curious thing this week too, Mark 9, 50, where Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I'm like, that's curious. Why salt and peace together at the same time? Well, salt was an essential first century item. Hot, no refrigeration, and salt preserved food. In in Mark 9, they're arguing who's greatest. (laughs) They're with the greatest one, and they're asking who's, who's the greatest. And then Jesus starts talking about temptation. Then he starts talking about judgment. And then he says, have salt in yourselves. As the word of God does the work in your heart, and as the spirit of God produces godly character in you, you're going to be acting as a preserver of the peace in the church. Peace speaks volumes. Unrest is easily detectable. In Romans 14, 19, it says, pursue what makes for peace. And look what goes along with it. Mutual upbuilding. Building one another up. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration and comfort. Agree with one another. Live in peace. See what goes with peace? And it says the God of love and peace will be with you. Love and peace go together. Ephesians 4, 3, be eager. Here's a desire born out of love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Colossians 3, 15, let the peace of Christ rule literally act as an arbiter or a, or a referee in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And here's what God expects and enables. You let the peace of Christ rule. It causes thankfulness. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. It's granted by God as a gift. Take it. 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness and Faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Your friends matter. If they're positive, it'll, it'll affect you. If they're negative, it'll affect you. James 3.18 says, The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Back in 1920, there was a, a Dr. J.B. Gambrell who traveled Europe with his colleague, Dr. E.Y. Mullins. And here's what Mullins said about the trip. We discussed everything. We agreed on the great things. We did not always agree on other things, but we agreed enough to be congenial and differed enough to make it interesting. If you love Jesus, you can get along with anybody. But peace is fractured when people lose their first love. Now let me ask you today, what's shaping your heart and your views and your attitude? And what are you bringing into the church? 
read an article recently that said this. In virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. Bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces presenting a particular point of view, and the main way it seeks to persuade is through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than by the church. Another article I read said this, algorithms are discipling us in very particular ways by curating the news we see, the things we purchase, the entertainment we enjoy, all feeding this sense that this world is ultimately all about you. We're hooked by systems designed to keep us engaged. We're moldable clay. What's molding you? Be shaped by the word of God, not by the world. If you're shaped by the world, you'll be resisting the peace. If you're shaped by the word of God, you'll be a reconciler. There is this temptation to resist the peace and cause dissension. And you can't hate people and love Jesus at the same time. You can't swim in a, in a sea of negativity in your friend group and not harm the church. Just like you can't keep from spreading germs. My friend Jay Bell said this, talking about the pain that people inflict on each other. He says, the night before Jesus died, after three years of listening to him and watching him, they argued and tried to negotiate through political maneuvering. And the one just got up and walked out. People equal pain. We hurt because we love. It's common. I, I gotta mention something. It's common. People will leave a church for one reason or another, and I hear this often when people come to Grace, or even if they leave, no one reached out to us after we left. And that could be after years of service, years of relationships. That could be very painful. But there's a lot of times when that gets said and the person wasn't kicked out of their church for bad behavior. Like they broke up with their church. They told the people, we don't want to be with you anymore. And what I what I've probably need to say more often is, with all due respect, do you think maybe they're, they're respecting your wishes? Sometimes people want to get chased down and they leave, and they, but they throw everybody under the bus as they go. Maybe people are just respecting your wishes. The one warning for us would be this. Don't view the church like the world. We're not consumers. We're worshipers. This is not about getting everything we need. Jesus provided everything for us so we can give everything we have. So church, if you see someone missing... Reach out to them. There could be so many reasons why they're not here. They're, they're sick, they're upset, they're, something might be going on. Even those who've been behaving badly, just reach out. There's always a backstory. And you know what people need? Patient, merciful love. When the beloved of God and Christ become beloved to one another, startling beauty defeats disunity. It's like bacon and butter. Makes everything better. If you overstep your bounds, repent and apologize and just choose the startling beauty that defeats disunity. There's a card we gave out today. We're going to look at it more in depth next week, but I want you to I want to highlight a couple things on this membership commitment for Grace Church. I just want to point out a couple things in it. One, it starts this way. We've been bought by God's grace and mercy to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus for salvation We've been baptized on our profession of faith. We seek to live out the following commitments. I want to point out two. 
Here's one. We will live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on us, preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Biblically deal with conflicts, putting welfare of others before our own. And one more. We will joyfully submit ourselves to our elders who are called to keep watch over our souls, trusting that God has placed them in leadership as humble, imperfect shepherds for our good. That needs to be our heart's desire as a church together. Because when you love your leaders, you please Jesus. I, I seriously praise God for every believer that loves their leaders as God commands. Recognize them, see them, know them, properly esteem them. Don't put them on a pedestal, just do life and ministry together. As you love your leaders, as I said a couple weeks ago, go into this year thinking, I'm going to adore Jesus. I'm going to aim to give, and I'm going to ask why. Why am I doing what I'm doing? In this passage, we see, what does a good leader do? Labor, oversee, and admonish. What does a good follower do? Respect and esteem very highly. What is everyone supposed to do? Be at peace with each other. You know, there are three billion plus people on earth right now that need to hear the gospel. So my thought is this. Why don't we start in our little neck of the woods and do exactly what Jesus says will identify us as his followers? Let's all be all ear. Let's be all heart and do exactly what God says in his word without pushback and just come running, straight up obedience. Please the Lord. How glorious, how glorious that will be. Lord, we just thank you and praise you that you gave us a new commandment to love one another as you have loved us and we're to love one another. And by this, all people will know that we are your disciples if we have love one for another. Oh Lord, make our love overflow and may we do what you expect and enable and empower us to do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.